don't launch if you're not ready. If you've got a better, you know, you're going to have a better team, better track record, refine the strategy more, you know, a year from now, you should launch a year from now. In this episode of Investors and Operators, we are talking with Fred Malloy, who is the co-founder of Harkin Capital, and we're going to talk all things first-time funds, emerging managers, and a whole lot more. Fred, it is awesome to have you here. Let's start off with, first off, a little bit of overview of what is Harkin Capital, your background, how you got into this, and then we'll dive into the meat of this and talk first-time funds. Sure. Well, so Harkin Capital is a placement firm, and most of what we do is funds one through three. Um, but we were really founded to focus on fund ones 15 years ago. And if you recall, there was a bit of a financial crisis at that time. And so while the first year or two were a little slow, we've been on a tear ever since. And I would say about 60 or 70% of what we do is top offs of funds one through three. And the balance is still what we originally founded for just launching brand new franchises, you know, getting involved at the very beginning. And the reason that's the original strategy is that's what me and my co-founder started off doing. So he was at SV Life Sciences as employee number six in the 90s when they had a $100 million fund. And he was their CFO and their fundraiser and deal sourcer and did a bunch of different things. The first half of my career, I was at a variety of strategies in private equity, but in 2006, took a job that was at an independent sponsor. We called it a pledge fund. And we... Uh, How many different names have there been for independent sponsors. It used to be called what? Merchant Bank, Pledge Fund, Fund List. Now that it sounds good, okay, we're independent. What what other names could there potentially have been? Well, we didn't, we went, so my first independent sponsor I worked at was called Watermill Ventures. And it was, it's now called Watermill Group. Um, but they're still, I work, this was in the 90s. And, and we didn't even have a name for ourselves. We didn't know anyone else who didn't have a fund. In Boston, there are a lot of people with funds at that time. And we were doing deals half with kind of the family money and half with kind of what we called friends of Steve, which were, you know, the founders, you know, friends and different people he met through YPO. But yeah, we didn't even have a name. We were just, you know, it was a miracle when you got a letter of intent signed because, you know, people didn't really understand, you know, what you don't have the money. It's like, no, we'll find it. We've been around since the 70s. We've done lots of deals. Let's come. Yeah, we could come back to that. We can go back to the evolution of independent sponsors. But yeah. sorry, keep on going with what you're but, saying. Well, yeah. So back back to the Harkin story. So the first half of my career, I is mostly on the buyout side and two independent sponsors. And the one that I, my, I, well, I call it my crossover job where I became the fundraiser. I had been trained at a firm called Capital Resource Partners in the cold calling uh, you know, TA Associates, direct sourcing deals methodology. And I took that to fundraising in 2006. And really, we launched the fund in 2007. And had a great success launching a firm that's called Intervale Capital, raised the $280 million first time fund, and really started thinking this startup side of private equity is so exciting and fun, you know, whether it's coming up with the name, setting the strategy, recruiting the team. Uh, I decided I really wanted to spend my career there. And the other part of that was that I had, because I had graduated business school in one during the dot-com crush, I had 
moved around a little bit. I had done too many different strategies. I wasn't building my own track record to be in the corner office myself someday. And so I was really thinking about, you know, long-term, what do I want to be? And so helping launch these new franchises seemed like a great place to go after the Intervale success. But at that point, I was one for one, you know, probably 34, 35 years old, one for one. And I recognized that wasn't a very inspiring sales pitch to the next client. And uh, so I found a partner called Don Nelson, who, as I said, was at SV Life Sciences. And like me, he'd sat on four boards in his career. He'd led some deals, but he had left SV a year earlier to hang out a shingle. And he was having his own thought that he might, you know, like to have a partner, but he had proven it, you know, done it a couple. He had, A, he'd been a fundraiser for a decade and B, he'd had two independent assignments before uh, we got together. And so, yeah, we spent the summer of 08 getting to know each other and launched the firm in the auspicious month of October 08. But yeah, so, ever so since- you, you we... have seen funds raised in difficult environments, which is somewhat similar to the fundraising environment in where we're at now. Well, I, I wouldn't say it's that similar, to be honest. I mean, it, it it is a tough fundraising environment, but there was complete paralysis in 2009. I mean, there were obviously- um, you know, a handful of funds got raised, but, you know, the biggest thing happening at that time were LPs saying, you know, we're not going to default on our capital calls, but you better not call capital. <laughs> yeah. And the GPs well, listen. So what do you think LPs learned from investing at that time that they're applying now going into a potential soft economy? and also a difficult fundraising environment. And they're like, hey, we should have invested with good managers who we knew could weather the storm. And guess what? We're going to get great returns because we knew when to back them. But what kind of conversations have you seen? What lessons have you seen these LPs apply? Well, I think LPs, to their credit, have they learned the lesson of better to be a buyer than a seller in tough times. And Harkin had a record assignment, record-breaking assignment in 2020 or 2020. And, you know, we just crushed it on assignment. It was a secondary fund and the LPs, you know, who had, you know, had been around for a decade at that point, you know, they remembered things that they sold at a steep discount in, in 2009. And they remembered that they wished they had bought stuff. And so they thought, you know, there was obviously a pause in 2020 with the pandemic, but in the second half of the year, LPs were like, all right, I'm kind of behind on my plan. The world didn't end. And oh, yeah, Fred was calling me about that secondary fund. Well, how much do you think that the, the, the people who went through that cycle, who are now at the institutional LPs, are they, I guess, the people who are getting exposure to the emerging managers, the first-time funds, those points of contact, to what extent have they lived through that? Or is it, hey, they're now at the CIO level and so the emerging managers, their messages didn't even get through. So how much is that lesson truly being filtered down to the rest of the investment committee at the LPs? So they do see these types of opportunities with first-time funds. Well, yeah, that the part of human nature where people just want to re-up, you know, with the managers that they've backed in the past. Uh, you know, particularly we've been in a long boom, right? Where, you know, even marginal strategies were making good money. And so you know, the bias to re-up continues to be strong. Um, but to your other question about, you know, kind of who lived through that segment. Yeah, I mean, I was like young guy when I started the firm. And, you know, I've definitely followed some LPs around to like four different jobs. And, and they've gotten promoted along the way, right? And so 
this has been a, you know, some of that turnover and seasoning of the humans that I met, you know, during my early assignments, um, you know, with them now either director of private equity or CIO level, you know, has been great for Harkin because the relationships have just kind of moved up the food chain. And, but, but you're right that there's a bit of an issue of the original, like the, the, the deal screener, kind of the first person to take a look at a new manager, you know, they often didn't live through that. And, and, you know, even if I've known someone for 15 years, they don't really want me to send them every single deck or they're not at least taking the first meeting. They'll, they'll look at the deck and they'll send it on to the person who focuses on that area. But yeah, it is a bit of an issue, but you know, I, go ahead. So do you think that is a fundraising, potential fundraising lesson for these GPs of make sure that if you're a first time fund, that your message is getting through to the people who have seen 09, who have seen it as opposed to no first time fund, talk to you at fund two. Let me get through this next few years. I think regardless, you need to get in at a at a pretty high level in these firms if you can. But there's also merit to just going to the right level of person who does the first screen and build a relationship with him or her. There's a lot to the how to do this and it's not it's not really a science it's you know it varies really by client by lp that you're talking to but you know if you can build a relationship with that champion and then give him or her the tools to show up on their monday meeting and saying look you know we've got a lot of re-ups this year we're, we're going to do one interesting thing and this is it and here's why you've got to make your champion at the lp able to sell internally whether it's to their boss their client their board, you know, they always have to sell it to somebody. And, you know, I mean, when I was first starting off on this, you know, I had a few clients saying, oh, yeah, I can close, just get me in the room with the billionaire and I, I'll get $20 million commitment. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. The billionaires have a team, they have a staff, they, they don't want to do the idea that's, you know, just popped in, you know, and was persuasive in the conference yeah. room. They want to have a process. Well, so, let's dive into that on how can gps and the and you know the placement agent who advises them how can gps most effectively give their internal champions the tools to sell internally what does success look like and what does failure look like in terms of giving that internal champion at the potential lp the tools to succeed and sell you again it's very case dependent but what i'll say is as a new firm you've got to be doing something new and interesting right and so you can't you can't show up you know we're in a mature industry right so if you show up and say to some family office hey i do software buyouts or you know i do you know fintech growth or you know you know if, if you just sell your category and then think they don't already have that somewhere else, you're a little naive, right? So like the, most LP, there obviously are people building a program and those are people we love to get in front of because you're not fighting the re-ups. But for most LPs, they have a very mature program and you need to bring them something new. And so if it's really hard to explain, that is maybe proof that it's new, <laughs> you know, that they don't already have it. but you know, it's a, it's, if it's too narrow or niche or hard to explain to them, then they're not able, you know, they may say, huh, that's interesting, but I'm never going to be able to explain this to my boss. And so you just get in this, you know, we'll take a meeting, but we're not going to progress kind of a yeah. situation with people. 
Well, what does that first screen look like? What is the checklist of that first screen to say, hey, this is interesting not for a first-time fund, for an average institutional LP that has some experience working with first-time funds? What does that first screen checklist look like? I think the most important thing is the team. So, and we'll talk about track record in a second, but with regard to the team, you know, ideally you're coming from firms that they've heard of, whether they've invested or they just kind of vaguely are aware that that's a good training ground. You could be coming from bank capital, a big fund, or you could come from, you know, a different emerging manager where you're like the next layer of the spin out. And, but it, but at least if they have some sense that it's, you know, you're coming from somewhere they've heard of, it helps a ton because then they feel like they can diligence you. But, you know, for, for guys and gals, and there's a lot of them who've been doing their own thing for five, six, seven years, and they've kind of come up the ranks in firms that are less recognizable, you know, it, it's a little bit harder. They might have a great track record, but just kind of team, you know, if, if we can say it's a spin out from X, then there's a little pattern recognition and we, you know, we get more first meetings. And the brand um, and the branding of that firm. Right. But, and then on to track record. So it's team and then track record. And so what have you done? Right. And so, you know, the track record is, you know, the SEC has more and more requirements and firms are getting smarter and smarter about letting people walk out with the track record. And so in some ways that helps the first time funds say, oh, well, we've we've got a great track record. We're just not allowed to put it in the deck. But you've got to figure out how to communicate your track record to people. And ideally, that includes round trip realizations, right? Like, it's not just, you know, I've done, I've deployed 300 million. No, you need to talk about the value you've created, whether it's write-ups or sales. Um, but it's, a you know, like, at a, there's ways people talk when they're talking to deal sources and brokers and bankers. It's like, yeah, I've deployed 300 million. That, that's like amazing that you've done that over the past seven years. But LPs care not about deployment. They care about returns. And so the things you brag about are just different from an LP. And then strategy is the last kind of major, you know, if we're thinking just three legs on the stool, you know, what what is the strategy? And, you know, it, is it interesting and is it going to be, you know, is it easy to explain, as I was saying before, but but is it, you know, is it a strategy where they think, huh, that could make sense? And so what we've done at Harkin many times, and, and we did this at Intervail, which was my crossover job where I was in-house fundraising, we say, look, here's our strategy. We're not smarter than these guys that now have the billion dollar funds, but they have the billion dollar funds. They're not doing the deals where they did three, four, five X deals anymore. You know, they're smart, they're great, but, you know, frankly, they're fat and happy and they're working on their, you know, five homes and their three boats and uh, and hopefully doing good deals for you. But think back to when you first backed them, what was the track record and what are you getting now? We're the ones doing those deals now. And then we're selling to them our mature businesses in very efficient auctions. That's been a uh, successful play for us, you know, many in in many different strategies. So you're not you're not scaring the LP that you know the big guys are. You know, if if you go too hard, which I kind of did just then about their boats and houses, then <laughs> they start saying, "Well, those guys are you know geniuses. They've delivered us you know consistent 1.7 x's." <laughs> so you don't want to go too defensive and make them feel bad for commitments they've made. But what you do is you say. You know, you don't have to fire them. Just don't scale up with them. 
and 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 carve out some allocation for this because we're generating alpha at the lower end of the market and we're selling into a more efficient market. That that's been very successful for us. Who should not raise a fund right now and should just focus on doing more independent sponsor deals for the next few years? What are the different, you know, if you use that three-part screen, like can you break that down a little bit more on who should not raise a fund right now? Yeah, I mean, if you haven't if you don't have any round trips as an independent sponsor, it's going to be very difficult to cross over to having a fund. So you got to exit something. And I had a client once who talked about how uh, people drink the cold beers first. It, it's it's a real challenge because you don't want to, if you have a deal that you think is a four or five X, if you hold it for another year, but you know you can sell it for two and a half, three X now, and then build your firm off of that return, that's a real debate. And what we encourage people to do is ride it to the 5X because that obviously you you personally make a lot more money on that carry wise. It delays when you launch your fund, but you can, but with LPs, they don't want you to do that to them, right? You need to, like, we're maximizing the outcome for our investors. And here's how we're doing it. You know, we're, if we have to hold it six, seven years, we will. And what about on best track record? What about on team? Like who should not raise a fund because of certain team dynamics? And what do those team dynamics look like? So so there have been a lot of people raising funds with one person who's amazing and they come from a big name firm and the LPs, you know, they've typically they've known some LPs at the decade they were at the big firm. And so it can be done with you know, really kind of one founder. You know, when I started in this business, it was there were a lot of like, you know, you need six, you know, senior members, three, four people on the investment committee, each with investable track record or attributable track record. That that's definitely changed. But that the one person who can raise a fund just on their deals that they did at some big firm, you know, it, it's pretty rare. And so much more common, you really need, you know, if not a full founding partner, you need someone who's, you know, within five or seven years of your age, who's got a great resume and you've been with them to, for a while. And so I definitely, I mean, building a team is expensive. You know, we understand that like the, you know, if you don't have more assets under management, every time you, you know, hire someone, you're taking a pay cut personally, right? So we understand there's a tension there, but you do kind of have to build the team and act like a $200 million fund, even though you don't, you know, have the 200 million under management if you're going to get there. What percentage of first time funds that have raised this ballpark estimate do you think are truly one founder who came from a good track record, good firm, and they just hire the team? Yeah, it's neat to do a Star Wars reference, but there's usually two. <laughs> the, uh, the, the Sith Lords usually have there's two. <laughs> so, you know, we've we've had some successes where there was like a 48 year old guy and a 38 year old guy. They'd worked together, you know, a decade earlier Then they were yeah. in different jobs for a little while, but now they're back together. Yeah. And, you know, there, there have been kind of one founder situations where they own the management company. They're the prime mover, um, but they get people that are about their age. But yeah, I, I, I really, you know, we have, you know, Harkin's been successful with, you know, these young firms and funds yeah. that I've been talking about. But our market share across the 4,000 funds in the market, you know, it's it's near zero. So I really yeah. can't generalize on, you know, what percent 
of funds have two yeah, real well, founders versus like a kind of a, a wing person. Well, maybe double click on this on the on the team a little bit more of what do good teams look like throughout the fundraising process and mm -hmm. what do how do teams not perform well throughout the fundraising process like what are some of these common threads of success and failure yeah so one one easy piece of advice for people is don't have a team page with the grayed out pictures of athletes to be named later it's just bad like it what you know we have we use DocuSend sometimes on the decks and we have data that LPs spend like two to five minutes on a deck before they take a meeting and and they go to three pages they go to this executive summary page that we create which tells the whole story they go to the team and they go to the track record and if you give them a quick reaction they don't have to read anything if they just see multiple like to be named laters they're like i'll be looking at this later and you know they're they're smart right they're not lps get a bad rap as being you know they don't work as hard as gps no they make rational decisions that they don't want to push something you know, uphill and get turned down at their own investment committee. And so if there's a reason for no, like an incomplete team, they'll say no immediately. And so what you have to do is say our team today is capable of deploying 100 million or 200 million or whatever the target is. And, you know, if if you need another analyst or associate or whatever, that's fine. Those are kind of viewed as commodities. You can find them. There's a cycle. You can always say, oh, we've got offers outstanding so-and-so starting in June like that. Again, I don't mean to minimize the complexity of it, but from a fundraising standpoint, LPs can say complete senior team. And, you know, yeah, of course they're building out the, the bottom half of the team. Everyone does. Sorry. Was that answering your question? Yeah. No, I got that, off on a tangent I, there. Yeah, that's really good. And let's, so let's dive into that. So what you're saying is like, the only thing that they truly care about to do this initial screen is like three things, exact sum, team, track record, those slides. Yes. They, and should yeah, they so, start in that order? Well, if the track record's on slide 27, you've got a problem. There's a reason. Right? Yeah. There, you need to, it doesn't have to be slide three. Sometimes you want to talk about the strategy in two slides or something. But if it's not in the first five pages, it's like, what are they hiding? You know, why are they making me look for this? Actually, kind of a funny story. So uh, I made this mistake when I was at Intervale. We were at a meeting at HarborVest. Ed Kane showed up, who was one of the co-founders. And, you know, the, you know, there was no Zoom then. So this this was the first meeting. This wasn't like pre-qualified or whatever. But I think our strategy was pretty interesting. And I had set the meeting with, I had an offer from there coming out of business school. So I knew some of the guys. I don't know if they were being nice to me to invite the co-founder to the first meeting or whatever, but I specifically remember we were on the 29th floor because I almost jumped out of the window because Ed Kane came into the meeting and he's just flipping through the deck and he gets to the appendix. And it wasn't the track record issue I'm talking about, but he couldn't see where the people had gone to school because I had done a team page that was more like pictures and less like bios. And he's like, you know, you, he, he says he interrupts the meeting halfway through and tells my bosses, the co-founders of the firm, like, you know, you need to find someone who can put a deck together. <laughs> and I'm just like about to break a chair through the window and jump out of the conference room, you know, because I can't find, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, if there's things they want to see, you got to put it at the front of the deck. In terms of, and that kind of makes me think about more of the marketing and look and feel of a deck. And does it, have you found 
in the decks that you've seen that people are putting the time, money, and effort to make it feel polished. Like it's not just a banker's deck, but it has some polish to it. Like it's like, all right, this is institutional, even if it's fund one. Yeah, I mean, so I, I have mixed thoughts on that. And so, I mean, there are some really polished decks that, you know, they hire consultants. It doesn't help if the track record isn't there or is mediocre or whatever. And so, you know, I think if you have all the ingredients, having it look better makes a ton of sense. But, you know, we some of our most successful funds have been very text oriented, you know, probably too much text on the page kinds of decks, you know, kind of break some of the presentation rules. And so we do some work in PowerPoint for people. You know, we have a few clients over the years who use like fancier, you know, softwares to make the decks look, you know, better, but that's not necessarily correlated with better outcomes on the fundraise. So let's go into the first meeting. What does a successful first meeting look like for a first-time fund meeting with an LP? And what is it, what does success not look like? So it's different with different kinds of LPs, and we can talk about that a little bit. But I would say there's two signals at the end of the meeting that are good and bad. And one is if they ask for the data room, not like I have clients that are like, hey, we've got data room. You want to go in the data room? And what is an LP going to say? They're like, well, sure, send me the link. But, you know, they still don't go in. Maybe maybe less than nine out of 10 times. But many times LPs ask for, they, they get asked for data room and they don't go in. So if they, if you're kind of winding down the meeting and they say, do you have a data room? It's just a little signal that the LP is interested enough to ask for the data room. And because they ask, they're more likely to go in. So that is a quote unquote good meeting. But I don't get paid for good meetings. I would be retired by now if I was paid on good meetings because every meeting is good. You're smiling on the way to the elevator. But the bad meeting, and and we've had commitments come out of bad meetings. So again, these aren't ironclad rules. But the bad meeting is just like, well, we meet on Mondays, you know, give us a call. And it's like, they, they don't, they don't tell you anything they liked about it. They don't imply this was interesting. They don't, you know, there's there's just like a bit of a poker face. And it's like, yeah, we meet on Mondays. And and, and I mean, the other kiss of death can be, you know, I think you're going to be successful. Like there's a few different like, well, this was more interesting than I expected, you know. So there, there are definitely comments where, you know, I think a meeting went fairly well. And then at the end, they're just like, I mean, obviously, some people are candid and say, you know, we're out of allocation. That's, you know, a little frustrating because you're like, well, why'd you take the meeting? If they're speaking directly about what they liked or didn't like, I think that's kind of a win, right? Yeah. Like, what, you know, you're at least, you're communicating like human being to human being in a way that can be helpful. But just vague comments like we meet on Mondays or wow, I think this is interesting is that's the kind of the bad meeting. So there are two signals. One, did they ask for the data room? And two, the just vague lack of like we meet on Mondays, you know, like all right, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about you. Trust me. Um, <laughs> all right. So the two signals are at the end of the meeting. One, do they ask for the data room? And two, to what extent have they been vague on the next steps or level of interest? Right. Yeah. Got it. So um, and that that goes for any client too. That's not just for first time funds. And I mean, there's there are better meetings than that with the, oh, can we do data room? Like, I mean, we've had like the best meeting is, you know, I usually do 40 million 
And the last time I did a fund like this, they crammed me down to, you know, 17 million. Can I get 40 million in your fund? And that obviously that's like, you know, they're going to have to do their due diligence. It's a couple months away, but you pretty much have a yes. So that that's the best meeting, just to be clear. <laughs> and we do have those, you know, in a typical assignment might have 100 meetings that might happen once. How much could and should you pre-qualify that? Because fundraising, it's partly, yes, I need to get this first close done, but it's also developing that relationship. But there's a shot clock. I mean, it, you know, you got to get the thing done. You got to pay bills. So how do you think about the extent to which you should pre-qualify an LP to really take that meeting? You know, have meetings just to have meetings to develop relationship versus being super focused on only people who truly have allocations. Yeah. So there's a lot there. So remind me different aspects of your question as I start wandering here. But so with regard to the <laughs> shot clock, we, we like to think about when is the fundraise going to end? Not, you know, when do we start? Like, you know, because a lot of people want to hit the market, us too, right? Like we live, I've, I've, I've been living on commission since 2008. So we want to get the sale. We want to get started. We want to make things happen. But but if if there's a key, you know, hire that's going to happen in a few months, if there's a key exit, write-ups, new deal, you know, we can offer some co-invest. Like there, we like to game plan out the next year and figure out what are the catalytic events that we can use. So we'll it, before those events, we'll go a little bit softer. Like you want to do meetings, you want to get better at fundraising. You know, have the team coach them up a little bit, and you want to start. You know, people have long timelines. You kind of got to get it started. But if there's some big exit coming up, just from their, let's say. Let's say it's a typical client. They've been around six or seven years. They've done six or seven deals. They've got one exit, but there's one more that's about to happen. That that can start to be like enough to get this fundraised. And so we could just do nothing until that exit happens. But what's more typical is we start the process. And then as that exit you know, materializes, like you've hired bankers, you've got letter of intent, you've got signed agreements, it's closed. You know, so we'll we'll tell people the good news before it happens and then we tell them as it happened and then we're bragging about it you know three or four months later as well but by you've kind of delivered something you said you would deliver um but there's a danger there if you know with four thousand funds in the market if i go out with a one exit deck you know people just say call me with fun two and and so anyway it's that's why we don't go very broad at the beginning so that that's part of your question about the shot clock. But so what, saying, what were the other elements so, of your question? Yeah, it's really just like how much should you pre-qualify beforehand? Be like, right. hey, Fred, yeah. do you do first time funds? Yes, no. Cool. Yes, you do. Do you have money? <laughs> yes or no for this allocation? Yeah. Like, how much should you do that true type of pre-qualification versus take every meeting, get in front yeah. and build these relationships? Yeah. So a guy on a guy, Steve Williamson on my team does a fantastic job at this. And, you know, I think Don and 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 Peter and I, who've, you know, been around a little bit longer, like we, in some ways, we kind of understand whether someone's a meeting taker or, you know, actually has the allocation or whatever. But Steve does a phenomenal job doing that call ahead of time. It's not just like the five minute elevator pitch on the client. Do you want to take a meeting? It's a subsequent call, understanding their check size, their process, their 
you know, everything about them. And so he does a phenomenal job at that. So pre-qualification is very important. But one thing I wanted to say about that is, you know, in a Zoom world, you know, we're we're talking over Zoom. It's wonderful that, you know, we didn't have to like get on a plane to do this podcast. But, you know, from a fundraising standpoint, sure, you can, you know, fundraise in St. Louis and in Tallahassee and in New York on the same day. But there's something lost by the in by lacking the in-person meetings. And so and the reason I'm relating this to your question is I'll tell you a story. So we, I was in Charlottesville with a client and we were going to see the two biggest LPs there. And we had a fill in meeting in between with me, you know, what's the third biggest LP who I barely knew at the time. And I told my client like, Hey, you know, this is our fill in meeting, but please, you know, bring your a game. You know, they've been kind of out of the market for a couple of years. They just haven't been doing a lot of commitments. But the woman we're meeting with used to work for the guy we're meeting later. And it's, you know, you want to you want to create a little buzz within a community, particularly in the smaller cities. So I told my guys, you know, bring your A game. Well, we walked away. Obviously, it took two months of diligence, but we got a $47 million commitment from the fill-in meeting. And so that was like zero pre-qualified. It was they just met with us because we're in town. We met with them because we're in town. And, you know, they had so- just shifted to meeting be ready and never know what's going to happen and don't just count people out because of what you think and it's not just with the gps thing is but also just on the placement agent side of just you never know well yeah i mean we live in a very low batting average world i mean if i could boil (laughs) this down to a real formula and you know if i knew which 10 or 15 lps were coming into my clients i would do one assignment a month and just call on those 10 or 15 LPs, right? Yep. So we call on a thousand LPs, we get a hundred meetings and we get 10 or 15 LPs. How and, many institutional LPs invest in first-time funds, do you think, ballpark? Well, hundreds. I mean, tons. Yeah. I mean, they'll I mean, there's there's new ones coming online, RIAs all the time. So yeah, I mean, I think there's tons of LPs who invest in first-time funds. There's like the ones who have a real firm policy against it. You know, they're often writing too big of a check anyway. So, you know, I mean, we're a small firm, right? We have six people. We're not like whining and dining the state treasurers in 50 states, but we get pension money through, you know, the advisors, the people who are whining and dining them, and they'll create an energy manager program or what have you. But, you know, these large pockets of capital don't typically do first time funds because of size not just, you know, kind of risk of this is a first time fund, it could go wrong. So two more questions come to mind. One is what does the second meeting look like? And what should they do between first and second meeting to keep the momentum? And then we'll kind of do like some summary thoughts for first time funds, do's and don'ts uh, in a tough fundraising environment. Yeah. So a lot there. And again, it's more art than science. It's not, it's hard to boil it down to every client, but the one thing I'll say is we talked about the data room and did they go in the data room or not? You cannot call them back, whether it's your agent or you directly like, hey, that was a great meeting we had two, three weeks ago. Have you been in the data room? Give me a call. You 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 need to go back to them with good news and you need to you know, just stay in front of them. And so it's like, hey, 
we did a new we did an exit remember that you know ceo we told you we were hiring he he's joined us you know it can be an add-on it can be a write-up it can be you know hey here's our quarterly updated numbers you want to just flow them something new like they'll click you know you want to send hey here's a two-minute video from one of our ceos you'll love this because it hits on this theme that we talked about and that a it signals to them that you know you remember the meeting like that you care you know you're it's a customized email you're not like mass emailing people like you know mass emails go in the spam filter like we all get them and you know you need to send a customized email as much as you can to people or or send the mass email and then send it again hey just making sure you got this and and it takes time it's painful but you kind of have to do it and if you can customize it to their concern that they articulated in the meeting or something that you were bragging about in particular that seemed to resonate, then you get them to click. And so we're, you know, we're we're kind of in the not no business of like just keep them give news. You know, we're not jamming someone for a yes or no. We just want to get them, you know, to think, oh, maybe I will spend a little more time on that. Maybe I will spend a little more time on it. And then, you know, maybe it's six months later, you know, you have that, you know, 4X exit and you know, they realize, you know, I think my boss, I think I can get this done. And uh, so anyway, so pushing good news is the major thing between any meetings, whether it's the third meeting and the fourth or the first and the second. And, and, and sometimes that means waiting, right? Like, you know, you, you want to have the fundraise by, you know, Christmas Eve, but, you know, if you're selling a company in Q1, you probably shouldn't do a ton of, you don't want a yes or no. If you've got a better, better cards to play later. Don't necessarily focus on what's happening in the second meeting. Focus on how are you maintaining momentum and building momentum and the different events that you can drip out on a consistent basis. Think about that. Plan that. Whether it's an add-on, a write-up, quarterly numbers, truly key hires, or something that the LPs are going to care about and it's going to help move the needle. And it's about balancing maintaining and building that on a consistent basis to stay in front in a targeted way with these LPs. Yeah. And the good news of all of that is that that's the main thing you're doing anyway as a private equity investor, right? You need to be serving your LPs and growing your companies and creating value. And that that is the main thing that's going to get your fund raised. And so, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, it's not which agent you hire, although we think we do a good job. Um, but if you can do good deals with the first close money, that's going to drive your final close more than these other, you know, you know, which agent you have. And so what I mean by that is, you know, it's often a year to two years between first and final close. If your first deals have grown EBITDA by 20% or 30%, the final close LPs are going to, you know, their greed will take over from caution because they get into that deal at, you know, kind of cost plus instead of at market value. You know, if first time funds are, are listening to this, if, if they only remember three things from this entire episode, what do you want? What are the top three things that you want first time funds to remember from this entire episode? So, so this is aspiring first time funds, right? Not people who've already crossed the chasm. So the, the three things that I would want them to take away is don't launch if you're not ready. If you're, you know, if you've, if you've got a better, you know, you're gonna have a better team, better track record, refine the strategy more, you know, a year from now, 
you should launch a year from now. That's probably the number one takeaway. And it goes against the grain of, you know, placement agents. If you give a hammer, you know, three-year-old a hammer, everything's a nail. If you ask a placement agent, you know, do you want to raise a fund? They'll say, yeah, let's start tomorrow. And, you know, that's, you know, we try to be more thoughtful about it. But that that's the number one thing is don't launch if you're not ready. You know, I guess the second thing would be, yeah, keep keep the flow of good news happening during the fundraise. And, you know, you, you want to have, you know, you, you've got to be able to kind of follow up with good news. You're not going to get the fundraised on today's story. You're going to get the fundraised on what your firm looks like six months from now. And is there um, for those two, the 80-20? I don't know. I mean, the, you know, I could obviously say hire good advisors, but, you know, just a plug for some of your work. I mean, I think using video and, you know, kind of more modern tools to build relationships with this younger cohort of LPs, I think is really important. We've had a lot of success with people, you know, sending out little short videos to and getting people to click on it. Like I was describing being in the not no business, getting them to do a little bit more work. But, you know, any anything you can do to you know, kind of break through the noise yeah. uh, is, is worth the effort. And, and here's what we've done with video is to, to your points, like executive summary, team track record within that framework, a 90 to 120 second video that summarizes who you are, what you do, the strategy, how the team has been together. Sending it out. Now you could generalize it so you could put it on your website, LinkedIn, and send it out privately. And then on the track record, having, you know, speaking to these case studies, maybe if you have a portfolio company, like we just saw two portfolio company videos, and they're sending that out to LPs because then you get to actually see the business, the managers, the people who've worked with these GPs get to talk to it. And then around the team, you can tell what people have chemistry and what people don't. And it's hard to see that in a deck. It's hard to see it when maybe one or two people are on that first call, but to see it in a video, it just conveys a completely different scent. And one of the things that we found on these videos is that a lot of the first meetings are more efficient because they're not spending 15 minutes talking about what could have been described in one or two minutes the week before in a video. And so it makes it more efficient and makes them interested. Yeah, no, I'm a big believer and, you know, full disclosure for any viewers, I haven't, you know, you you and I are just getting to know each other. I haven't been sending my clients your way, but I do want to encourage my clients to look at your services because, you know, I there a few have done some of this stuff, but like what I'll say is we've had very little success saying click on this annual meeting link because people are like, I've got 2 hours, I didn't know what I wanted to do with. Thank you. Nobody says that, right? But click on this two minute video, you know, we've had some success and it, you know, you, you're in this business and you might someday have a data that says, you know, the four minutes is the limit or 12 minutes is the limit. Well, it's interesting because there are different types of things. Like we literally just did a 67 minute virtual AGM and LPs emailed after like, thank you for doing this again for the second year in a row. And I think it depends on what that is, but the topics that we have seen in the videos we produced are like, one, what is the overview of the firm? Like that's the sizzle reel. Then diving deep. So for example, one of our clients is raising a $200 million fund and they've hired three people that are key. So we'll record over Zoom, just simple two-minute bio videos over and, I, and we drip that out once a month on this new hire. 
And that's part of it because you get to see, like, is this person culturally a fit with this GP? And there's so many of these different things that could just be dripped out in a differentiated way. And then you can also target it and you could get the analytics behind, did they open it? How much did they look at it? Yeah, that that's huge. To be able to see if they viewed it is really important because you can call them a minute later or a day later, whatever you think is appropriate. Yeah, that can be the good news, right? Like I, I'm saying, oh, have an exit or hire a new CEO. Well, that only happens so often, but you want the flow of good news between meetings. So, you know, here, here's a new video we did on, on that portfolio company we talked about is a great thing to do to just kind of keep engagement, keep your name in front of them. The one debate that, you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if settleable yet, but the worry I have a little bit of like if if people look at a 12 minute video, I get it. I hear you that they you can kind of the first meeting can be like meeting 1.5 if they already heard certain things. Oh, I would never send a 12 minute video. That would that would die very early on the um, editing floor. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I guess what I'm what I'm saying is if they've if you've done some what of the first if you do a little bit of the overview in a first meeting for an LP, do they then not take the meeting? Like, are they, did that satisfy their curiosity and then they don't meet? Whereas like some of my hour meetings, like the good stuff happens in minute 55, right? Like some meetings start off really well and they, you know, just kind of go really well um, because the LP starts off well, like, I'm looking for a little bit more example, like, hey, here's one of our two or three exits. And then here's a two minute video about that. So what is the company? Like, what is this particular manufacturer? And then the last half is, how did we actually grow the business? What mm -hmm. value did we create? And then yeah. it allows us to have not just like surface level discussion. It says, hey, I watched that thing. It was really interesting. Can you tell me more about this particular topic? And they remember it. So one of the things yeah. that we've, I was talking with a, a law firm and he's like, LPs, when they go to AGM, like literally the next day, they forget what just happened because they have how many other current commitments. And then within a GP, how many portfolio companies do they have? And then how many new GPs are they trying to are getting trying to get their attention? So you have to stay front of mind and just remembered. And so yeah. this is one of those things that tells helps to move the needle to stay in front of mind. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And so I, I actually forgot to mention we at Harkin invest in our clients' funds. And so I'm in 25 funds now after doing this for 15 years. And it's been phenomenal for us because they're performing well. But I have my own annual meeting season. And I, you know, we do it because of the integrity of the situation. Our LPs, you know, we don't, we're not bragging about this to every LP we talk about, but our core LPs, as you know, they get to know us, you know, they understand that we're in it with them. You know, I'm an investor in the fund. I'll be there. If something goes wrong, it's bad for me too. But but anyway, yeah, I I understand that. We have our own annual meeting season. And I was at a annual meeting last week. And, you know, there were some things that were good about it and some things that were bad about it, but it's fading from memory, right? <laughs> Just as a little bit of time passes. So I try to give my clients feedback right away. Here's what was a hit and here's what was a miss. And a meeting. lot of times, like I found that LPs don't really know what the portfolio companies do. And they need this re-education because they might be across all these different asset classes, all these different LPs, and you have what, five or 10 commitments in just one fund. And it's like, wait, what does that vein business do? Wait, yeah. what does the stem cell business do? So like yeah. doing a 101 has been really helpful for them to remember 
what it is. Yeah. But, and one thing, one thing in addition to that, that so sometimes my clients are just coming off a fundraise and they've just described, you know, like everything is, you know, you want the annual meeting pitch to be different or deck to be very different from the fundraising deck. But sometimes the CEOs go too deep into what they do as if they're talking to a customer. And so that's where your editing comes into play. And I would definitely coach every CEO in or, you know, in every video to say, at the end, the thing the LP cares about the most is, and EBITDA is growing by X, and we're going to sell this company this <laughs> so year start for that the, amount of money. So start the, the, the front, the hook should be, we grew from five to 15 in two years. <laughs> yeah, Here's what you, we do. <laughs> right. You just, you can't go so deep into, you know, every esoteric thing about what the company does and how you're a little bit different from your competitors. Because you can lose people on that yep. stuff. Like what we, they, we you know, dumb they it down. Come, <laughs> yeah. They want to come back from the annual meeting. You know, they're going to tell their boss or their boss is going to say, Oh, how'd it go at the such and such annual meeting? And they'll say, Yeah, I think it went well. I think we're going to make, you know, 2X on this fund. And the, there's very predictable questions. Well, when's the next exit? When's the next capital call? You know, what are the year end marks looking like? Like there's two or three questions that if you don't answer them, you know, your LP is going to be stuttering in their Monday meeting and you're kind of on the bad list. So, yeah, I think annual meetings are like their own topic and kind of are like once you get across the chasm to having a fund, there's there's ways to kind of keep that relationship yeah. tight. I mean, again, the main thing is delivering. Right. The main thing is doing good deals that are on strategy that are you know growing in value. But there's all these other little things that matter. We covered a lot of ground. And I think that we just skimmed the surface on effective first-time fundraising. Thanks so, thanks so much for taking the time to do this and excited about getting this out there. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to, to reach out? Yeah, it's our website, harkencapital.com, Fred at harkencapital.com. It's H-A-R-K-E-N, capital with an A. But yeah, just shoot me an email or send me a text or you know our numbers are on there. So um, but yeah, we're very happy. We give a lot of free advice to folks and we don't know if they're going to be a client a month away or, you know, a year away. In fact, we're we're talking to our very first client about helping them out next year, you know, years, years after the fact. And so we like to be a valuable part of the ecosystem. So yeah, please send people my way. We're happy to chat. Awesome. All right. Have a good day. Thanks so much. Yeah. Have a good one, Jordan. <laughs> right. Thanks so much. Yeah.